Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. This episode, we are joined by Suzanne Kelly, the CEO and publisher of The Cipher Brief. If you haven't heard of it, The Cipher Brief is a daily national security publication that shares the insights of some of the most influential members of the national security world. Their website at thecipherbrief.com tries to take a decidedly non-political approach to the most pressing national security issues that impact both the public and private sectors with a focus on experience and true expertise. The idea for the Cipher Brief came from Suzanne's 20-plus years working as a journalist, most recently at CNN as the network's intelligence correspondent. But she wasn't just a journalist, she was an entrepreneur as well. Realizing there was a better way to deliver national security news and information than the way she had been doing it for the bulk of her career. Suzanne, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Megan. It's so nice to be here with you and your team. This is very exciting for me. It's exciting for us too. So let's get started. I, you know, I wanted to start out by asking you to talk a little bit about your background in national security and how that led to you launching the Cypher Brief. That's a great question. You know, I've always enjoyed um, hard challenges and I've always been okay with not always knowing what comes next. There was a point in my career kind of on the journalism side where I'd been doing kind of the same thing more or less for so long. And, you know, I was always thinking about there must be a better way. There must be a better way to bring true expertise on national security issues to people on a format where they need it. So, you know, when I first started with CNN, you turn on the TV and whatever was on is what you got. And that was where kind of, you know, technology was at that time. But um, I kept looking at all the incredible reporting that they were doing from around the world. And I thought, maybe it's time to start looking at digital platforms. And this is a while ago, to be fair, um, as places where you can kind of serve things up that are really fantastic. And so that kind of launched my idea to go out and kind of curate um, expertise and, and stories and analysis and facts and start building a network around national security. And so when I was there, I was lucky enough to work with some very talented people to launch our own blog. We called it Security Clearance. Um, and we did exactly that. We would pull in, you know, all the great reporting from around the world that CNN was doing, and we would find the right experts to kind of help us build some context around it. And the website did really, really well. Unfortunately, the way that CNN was set up at the time, it wasn't something that would ever become kind of like a full-time role for me, but I had this passion for it. So I just decided at a not so early age that um, I was going to go ahead and take the risk and, and go into the private sector and uh, see what I could learn about a whole new world of raising money and talking to investors and building up something um, out of nothing. And that's really what the Cypher Reef became, just this idea that I'd had to try to bring the very best context around national security issues that I could um, to people who I felt like needed it. So 
what I find interesting about your background is that journalism and intelligence are functionally pretty similar um, as they are both in the business of information. So what are some of the similarities and differences that you have observed throughout your career between journalism and intelligence? I love that question. And I hear it, uh, like I hear people comment on that in one way or another all the time. Because if you think about it, um, journalists just do kind of openly what, you know, sometimes people in the intelligence community do clandestinely. But you still are responsible for making sure that your sources don't have hidden agendas, that they're credible, that they're, you know, there's nothing strange going on. And you have to make sure you're finding and recruiting the best sources. You have to um, really kind of build a network of trust, especially as a journalist when, you know, what you report, there's such a huge responsibility, uh, I think, today um, for journalists on what they report and the need for that to be accurate and to have the appropriate context, which I think sadly is missing in the way that we had it, you know, 20 years ago. But I think that the skills are so similar being able to build those networks, earn trust, kind of figure out, you know, what context is needed around something because it's kind of like being a parent, right? Anytime like one person or one child comes to you with one side of the story, you know, that's not the whole story. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Never. <laughs> so just, um, you know, the, the sort of patience and calm and determination to sort of bring that context to something is very similar in journalism and intelligence. And the thing I liked about intelligence that we didn't always do in journalism is the forward-leaning aspect of it. So the, the one thing that kind of frustrated me just about the industry as a whole was we kind of tell you what happened that day. You know, it's fun to do the little live shot and, and bring you the latest information and the great sources we've developed, but we're not really telling you all the time what it means or where it's leading. And I was always really, really interested in where is this going, right? How can we be ahead of it so that we can understand how to best navigate it when we get there? And it's not like sort of an uh-oh moment. Um, I think that's a difference, but there are so, so many similarities. I, I've sat with um, a lot of the folks in our network before who have like, oh my gosh, you should have been a case officer. And I'm like, well, I think most journalists in a way kind of are. I was going to say <laughs> in another life that this seems to be uh, another one of your callings is just taking it and being an intelligence officer. So yeah. I would agree with that. There might be a lot of crossover uh, between those two roles for a lot of people I know. <laughs> That's so funny. So, you know, one of the things you've done throughout your career is work to bring diversity of thought to different issues. How do you do that? And can you share some examples with us? Yeah. So uh, one of the things that is really important for us at the Cypher Brief is trying to bring different perspectives on issues. So, you know, we work from folks from the IC, um, from the State Department, and we know that intel officers and diplomats have very different ways of going about things, you know, always with the same ultimate goal in mind, we hope. Um, and and I think having different voices on issues helps us understand it from, again, that more 360 perspective, which is really important. Um, but I've always enjoyed bringing like smart, interesting people together, even if sometimes you don't really know um, what you're going to get out of it. And I just remember an example of that is when um, I was back at CNN and I was kind of looking at how we were writing and how we were kind of trying to engage the audience and really convey, I mean, writing is not easy, um, trying to convey the importance of something or why somebody should care about what you're about to tell them is a bit of a challenge by itself. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought, gosh, you know, I, I had just written um, and had published my first book, which was um, about Blackwater at the time. 
And so um, I had been introduced to Howard Gordon, who back then was the executive producer on 24, who then became mm -hmm. the executive producer for Homeland. And I was talking with him one day and I'm like, how do you, how do you come up with your, you know, what's your process, like your writing process? And he said, well, there's a lot of Google involved <laughs> and just a lot of natural curiosity. But then there's that artistic layer that I think really kind of makes it shine and, and pulls you into the story. And, and I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be interesting to have you come to Atlanta and, and kind of talk about your process for writing with the people who write the real facts, you know, like the news. And uh, he was, I, I know he was really busy at the time. And I know he has put up with me over the years and all my horrible requests, but he did it. Um, he came out and, and spoke to CNN and I think, you know, there were hundreds of people in the room just like so interested in his process. And I thought, you know, this is, this is a win-win kind of mix. I mean, you're bringing smart people together. We had some of our top journalists there that day who were asking questions, you know, of him and he was answering and it was so phenomenal that um, I just kind of always thought the more different perspectives you can have on things, the better. Just another kind of real quick story, but another example of that was with uh, General Stan McChrystal, who is one of our cipher experts and one of our investors, Thomas Tall. And, you know, Thomas is a business entrepreneur, kind of uh, worked his way up in Hollywood and became the head of Legendary Pictures. Um, and Legendary does some of the really cool, you know, edgier uh, movies out there. And Thomas really wanted to meet General McChrystal because he's very interested in national security issues. And I thought, okay, well, so we, I called up um, the general and, and uh, Chris Bussell, who works with him over there. And the four of us just sat in this conference room and Chris and I just sat back, kind of flies on the wall while the general and Thomas talked. And it was so fascinating just to hear the questions they asked each other because they had such different perspectives, yet these two men were obviously leaders in their respective fields. Mm -hmm. And I think just listening sometimes to that kind of expertise and being open-minded enough about bringing different perspectives together is such an incredible learning experience. I'm totally exposing myself as a nerd right now, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. So, you know, it is exciting. One thing I love about the Cypher Brief is the way you present information. You often do this by bringing really interesting people together in a conversation with one another. And you just gave an example of that. You shared with us that one of the ways you do this is by asking yourself, you know, who is the most interesting person I would want to have dinner with? Um, and so this begs the question, if you could have dinner with anyone in the world right now, who would it be and why? Oh, it's another really good question. Um, I think I've, I've always been fascinated with people who either had some kind of just natural charisma or leadership ability. Like what is it about them, um, their personality, their motivation, what drives them that gives them control and power, whether they use it for good or whether they use it for bad. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of, you know, if you think about it, um, I, I subscribe to this belief that we're all human. Like we're all so similar in more ways than we are different, but there's Absolutely. something different about these people. And, and I love kind of examining what those differences are. I think um, I was anchoring one of my very first anchor jobs when I was in Europe was on the morning when um, Pervez Musharraf basically took control of Pakistan. And I was like, how did this happen? How did we get here? And I remember years later, I was in um, an elevator in DC and um, at a think tank where he was speaking and he happened to walk in the elevator. And I was like, oh my gosh, no all these I've had all these years, but I just, I was too, you know, embarrassed to look like a total fan and like I was stalking him. So I didn't ask him <laughs> questions, but I think I would really love to 
probably have dinner um, with Vladimir Putin, which a lot of people say, uh, yeah. especially in my world, because we have so many Russia experts and so many people who have actually worked this mission on Russia for a very long time. But I think, um, I think just understanding how someone who doesn't necessarily have um, the status you know, in his country that the United States has, but is able to project power and is able to find ways to be a disruptor mm-hmm. and in his world to be relevant. And I think, um, I think just understanding that motivation would be really fascinating for me. Do you think it's being in front of that person and kind of seeing them face to face and see how, I mean, he's obviously like a master manipulator, right? But is it, you know, being yeah. in front of that person and a- actually asking him the questions and seeing how he reacts? You know, we, it, it's sort of like this cult celebrity thing that we have, right? Like we have this idea of people when we only hear about them or only see of, of who we think they are. But I think the opportunity to sit down and understand body language and eye contact and mannerisms, and you start to see kind of a more complete picture, Right. It's supposed to make it a little bit more relatable. I think, um, you know, I, I look at all these like historical figures who we think are so fantastic. And I wonder what it would have been like, you know, to sit down and have dinner with George Washington or with Thomas Jefferson or something like that. And, and what we would have said during the time, like, oh, you know, they, uh, they don't shower enough or they don't <laughs> have bad taste in food or bad teeth or like all the things that we sometimes, um, you know, judge in people that we interact with today. But it's funny that history has a way of just showing the greatness. And I think sitting down with people, you kind of get more of the warts and all sort of experience a little bit. Right. So something that stood out to me is your ability to get individuals from different political parties to collaborate. How are you able to get people together, set aside their differences in order to work together? And I think even more importantly, you know, this community is built on trust. And it's hard to gain that trust unless you've had some battle wounds, right? Like you've worked here or worked there. So I guess my first part of the question is how you get these people to work together. And then how have you gotten them to trust you and to share and to, you know, trust that they're in a safe space when they come to the cyber brief? Yeah, I think trust is easy. I've always been uh, very transparent about my motivations. Um, And my motivations are to try to bring as much expert perspective um, to stories as possible. My motivations are not, you know, who's doing what behind the scenes with who. And, you know, if it doesn't kind of directly relate to um, a national security issue, like people's private business, in my opinion, is a private business. So I'm not going to go for those sort of, you know, sensational headlines that 50,000 other news outlets will go for. So I think just being upfront with people about what our mission is and why we feel like it's important. Um, but when I first launched the Cypher Brief, I went around and started talking to people I really respected in the national security field who did have different perspectives. Um, I remember sitting down with uh, General McChrystal and him saying, you know, I think this is a great endeavor. I think there's certainly a need for this kind of thing. But if it ever turns political, I'm out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just remember saying, yeah, you're right. I mean, it absolutely has to. We have to continue whether it exists in this country or not anymore, to cater to the middle. Because I feel like there are so many more people who are willing to look at what we have in common and what our goals are and how we best bring our expertise to protect all of us. 
um, than there are people who are just looking to, you know, poke, you know, differences or our highlight differences. But one quick example of what, of how we've been able to do this at the Cypher Brief, you know, Mike Hayden, Mike and Janine Hayden were um, two of the first people that we sat down with when we first kind of had this idea to kind of get their feedback on it. And they both, again, you know, having spent their entire careers, um, you know, in General Hayden's case, in national security, leading the CIA and the NSA, and in Janine's case, probably understanding more than um, any of us, uh, all that's going on behind the scenes and all of it requires, were very supportive of this effort. And then um, also General Jack Keane, who's been a friend for years, um, and was asked, you know, by President Trump twice to be the Secretary of Defense, um, feels very differently politically than General Hayden does today. But nonetheless, you know, they're both willing, um, it, despite how they feel politically, mm -hmm. to set that aside, to come together and bring, you know, what they know to the table when we're talking about these threats. And a diversity of thoughts, again, is so important. So if you can't have diversity of thought sort of politically, you can definitely have it when you're focused on issues of national security, but you just have to have people who are willing to set aside differences to, to talk and to communicate on these issues. And I've been so lucky that so many of our, you know, influencers in this country are willing. And do you feel like they're still willing, even in the current climate? I do. I do. I feel like, um, you know... I always tell people, I've had a lot of people submit things to the Cypher Brief that um, I've rejected because they were too political. They focused too much on an, in an individual and, you know, their characteristics. And I'm not saying any of those things are not important. I respect everyone's right to judge and to have their own opinions about what this country needs in terms mm -hmm. of leaders. But again, like I, I try really hard to keep it focused on how does this impact the United States relationship with Russia, right? How does this impact our policy with Iran? Um, I, I just keep going back to that. And I feel like it's a, um, it's a way to keep people focused on kind of my agenda, if you will, um, as opposed to the political one. And that's why they should tune into the Cypher Brief. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that's why they should be reading what you guys are producing. Okay. Um, so to pull a little bit on, you know, you talked about sensationalism. And so, you know, it's not news nor a surprise that journalism has become sensationalized in pursuit of like the clicks. And it's more and more difficult to tell what is true and what's not true. Was this your experience while you were a journalist or is this something yeah. that's just current? No, I think um, I think technology has completely changed uh, the journalism world, and I think all of a sudden uh, it became much harder to know what was truly journalism, what was going through um, an editorial process that had been in place for you know and built over time for very good reason, back to the days of Edward R. Murrow, to people who had opinions. Um, or had rumors to spread and had a laptop and a website. And it just became very hard, um, I think, for most people who are just kind of listeners and looking for information to know, um, to be able to tell the difference anymore. Um, and I think that's really sad. Um, there are still amazing journalists out there working today who do have an editorial process and do make the extra effort to make sure they're not being manipulated, that they're telling, you know, multiple sides of the story, but there's just a lot of noise as well. Very sad to see uh, that that's happened. But I also think it's important for people to remember that at the end of the day, news is a business. Um, you know, journalists in the last few years have been under a lot more pressure to um, 
come up with the angle of the story that is going to get the most eyeballs, right? To focus on the aspect that might not, if you look at it in broader context, be the most important point, but it's certainly going to make a fantastic headline and you're going to get clicks. And when we're in the age when journalists are, you know, somehow being measured by how many followers they have on social media or how many clicks their stories get, it changes the dynamic of going out and writing a story. And I'm not a big fan of that either. So it's kind of the business model of news. Yeah, it is. I think it is. I'm not sure what the inner workings of uh, NPR, you know, are <laughs> if, they, if they sort of follow that thing. But it's one of my go-to news sources um, for just, I feel like you can see um, more of an effort there than you can in a lot of other places to bring balance and context. And I appreciate that not all journalists will always get there, but that there are still people trying. Trying. Yeah. So on the flip side of that coin, as, you know, intelligence analysis can be more formulaic, you know, how can we be more creative in our analysis in the community? Gosh, that's such a great question too. I think our kind of go-to tagline has always been know your audience. And that's been the case like throughout my career. Um, I think, I think knowing your audience is critical to being able to communicate a message effectively. But I think when you're in the intelligence community, you're, you know, your, your audience sometimes changes, um, especially let's just say you're the president's daily briefer. I mean, you're having to go through uh, understanding a, a particular personality and particular preferences for how somebody um, absorbs and then thinks about information. Um, I think even the nature, you know, from a journalist perspective, even the nature of audiences are changing now. There's a different expectation. Like because we've been kind of spoon feeding people more sensational headlines, they expect them now and that's what they want and they're going to naturally be drawn. So in a way, it's not always a journalist's fault. Like we're caught in this big, you know, whatever you want to call it. I have words, but they're not appropriate for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of what's going on. But I feel like... Um, I feel like un, you don't always have to follow a formula and, and this is part of where the individual comes into it, you know, being able to express what you think is, um, you know, part of your personality that's going to be appealing to the person you're communicating with, um, letting them know that you understand what their needs are. Um, and this is why I'm not, um, I'm not in the intelligence community teaching how to brief, but <laughs> just, I think, I think being creative today um, is huge in being able to set people apart from reading a report or reading a list of important bullet points or whatever it happens to be. Um, I've always thought, you know, I've always responded to people, um, in my career who had a sense of humor and who were able to not take themselves too seriously. Although, you know, there are lines when that's not really appropriate, <laughs> more so probably in the intelligence community, but probably a horrible answer to a really good question. It's, it's something we're thinking about, but I think knowing your audience is mm -hmm. really critical. No, I, I mean, that is a very hard question to answer. And I don't know, I don't know, even leaders of analysis, you know, directorates could answer that question. Um, so yeah. thank you for trying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, what surprised me is that you are a self-proclaimed introvert. I mean, I think a lot of people would be are, are going to be surprised to to learn that. Did you ever feel that your introversion made things more difficult for you? And what advice would you give, you know, our introverted listeners who aspire to have a leadership role? Yes. So um, I think it probably held me back about 20 years 
um, professionally because I was not good at building a network. I wasn't good at going to happy hours with colleagues. I wasn't good at, um, you know, developing relationships with people who I didn't feel like were close friends or family or because it was very hard for me to have small talk. It was very, very difficult. One of the, I mean, I would hate, can't believe I'm admitting all this. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Um, I, I would hate going to events where I knew I had to have small talk with people, even if it was just for like 20 minutes ahead of time. But if you can sit me down with, you know, a group of people and give us a substantive issue to talk about, like I love digging in. But it took me about 20 years to figure out that, you know, just doing my job was not going to be enough mm-hmm. to help me achieve what I wanted to in my career, that I really had to build a network of people. And so I kind of did it just because I had to with building the Cypher Brief. But what I found was like, I, I've just been exposed to so many amazing people along the way. And I think part of the reason why um, I get along with the people that I do is because there's this very genuineness about, you know, I'm telling them right up front what I want, why I want it, why I'm going to use it, why I feel like it's important. And generally where where we tend to bond is that most of these people feel like it's important as well. Um, And then you're just starting from a really authentic place and, and you can build a network. If I had known that like 20 years ago, how important it was to build a network and how it was okay to do it from a place of just being you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would have done way, way better. But um, that's such a good answer. Yeah. And I think that there are so many people out there, including myself, and I always attribute it to where I grew up. I grew up in the Midwest. And it was when I came here to DC, you know, you had to market yourself, right? You go to all these happy hours and, and I just hated it because I felt like it was fake. And I think I have thrived when being my most authentic self. So hearing you say that, I think it's going to resonate with so many people out there, especially young women and men who are just coming into the industry, you know, just be yourself. You don't have to pretend, you know, to be something you're not. So I love that answer. It's so true. And I hate, I mean, that's the part of DC. While there are a lot of parts of DC, I absolutely love. That is the part of DC I hate the most as well. Just the whole, like, who are you? What do you do? How can you help me? Right. Exactly. <laughs> drop that. Um, DC wouldn't be a bad place, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I hate that as well. <laughs> so to pull a little, uh, a little bit more on um, the leadership piece, what do you think are the most important skills for people in a leadership position, whether that be in government or industry, just generally? Oh gosh, another great one. Um, No wonder you have such a successful podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Leadership is really hard. Um, I think, you know, you get a lot of brilliant people in leadership positions who don't have the right people skills to get their teams on board. I think um, sometimes you have a lot of people in leadership positions with great people skills, but not necessarily super dynamic, innovative ideas Mm -hmm. or the desire to push them. So I think um, kind of having someone who has both of those traits is is a bit of a unicorn and great. And and thank goodness there are tons of people uh, who are unicorns out there, but um, it's, it's tricky. I think, um, understanding the balance between um, I I care about you as an employee and, and getting too pulled into, um, you know, personal drama, which 
I have trouble with that. I, I've always had trouble with that. I think there are people who have done a great job with it. You know, Tish Long is someone who I think um, has spent a great deal of time in leadership positions, walking a very nice balance between those two things. Um, I've always had trouble with it. I think um, you care very much about people, but for me, that's the personal side of me and the work side is the work side. And we're here to complete a mission. And while I care about you and your well-being and me and my well-being, um, I know that too much of that is a distraction. It, it's hard. That's a really raw answer. It's a really honest answer, I think, that you know, you're not going to read in leadership books. Mm-hmm. Um, but trying to, if you, if you have the motivation to be a good leader, understanding how to connect and how to know what's important and um, what is toxic. I think are, are really critical things. I think that's a great answer. Thank you for that. So, you know, you've spent your entire career trying different things. How did you know when it was time to try something new? And how did you navigate the rejection that often comes with taking a leap? Oh my gosh. A lot of uh, rejection and fear. <laughs> and fear, yes. Um, a fear too, because the rejection only comes after you've done it. <laughs> I think... Um, I love the question about how do you know it's the right time? I think it's like, um, it's like falling in love, right? I think we all ask our questions like, how do we know if this is real? How do we know if this is it? How do we know if this is this thing? We've all had this idea of our whole lives and people tell you, you just know, but sometimes, you know, that's very stressful too. Right. Um, I think when it comes to taking a risk, um, there is a certain amount of understanding timing. For me, I've thought about things for years before I've taken the leap. Um, the Cypher Brief was an idea I probably had um, for more than 10 years. It was something that you know I tried back when I was um, in CNN. We did really well with it. I really wanted to like run it myself. I really wanted to create it. I really wanted to do the things I wanted to do. And I realized, I think just looking, if you look at your career, like I've looked at mine as stepping stones Mm -hmm. um, and opportunities to collect the different experiences that you knew you were going to need to be successful, then that helps answer the timing question for me. Um, I thought for years about um, writing um, the book on Blackwater a couple of years before I actually pulled the trigger and did it. Um, and I think a lot of that was because of what was happening in the news um, and that it was really important all of a sudden for people to understand how a, a private security contractor could be in a position to have so much um, power in Iraq. Um, I think that just understanding the timing, being alert about what's going on around you and making mm-hmm. sure that you're kind of plotting a little bit along the way to make sure you have the skill sets you need to try something. But every single time, whether it's writing a book or um, launching a business, um, I've been terrified, completely terrified. And I would never tell anybody that except you and everybody. (laughs) Everyone listening. (laughs) Everyone else out there. But um, I think you you really have to find a way to push through the fear. You know, a really good friend of mine sent me um, a little little poster in a frame one time. and, And I was like, this is a weird present. But it said, everything you want is on the other side of fear. And Mm. it just pulled together so many of the feelings I'd already had. And it just resonated with me. And I feel like if we can teach our daughters and and our sons that, um, you know, when you come up against something that terrifies you, that you have the skills you need to navigate through it, Mm -hmm. you have to believe in yourself and you have to have the calm of mind to think it through and do what you can, but you are going to make it. 
And I love that. Um, but fear and rejection, rejection to me has always been a motivator. Um, me too. I, I, I firmly <laughs> believe that. Reject me. Um, <laughs> I think, um, it, it does kind of, but it's a learning experience too, right? Because if one person rejects you, um, mm-hmm. there's a reason for it. And it might not always be your fault, which I think as women, we tend to think, oh gosh, it must be me when really it's not. But I think finding out what that is or trying to kind of quantify what that is uh, in your mind um, is helpful. And it's a learning point and it shouldn't be overthought. And it shouldn't be internalized and dwelled on, but it should just be a learning point. And, and then when you gather enough of those learning points, you start to see this landscape, you know, take form and it helps you kind of navigate to where you want to be. So I think rejection is important. And I think um, understanding how to navigate fear uh, is the difference between success and failure oftentimes. I think that's going to be so comforting to the listeners to hear that answer. It's comforting to me. So now comes uh, the fun part of our episodes where we ask you, you know, in keeping with the name of our uh, podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? So this is a really stressful question. (laughs) This is me overthinking. And this is a really hard (laughs) question for overthinkers. Um, So I I think, you know, I went through a lot of... uh, you have so many other great women you've talked to on the podcast with really cool code names. And I'm like, okay, like none of those are me. <laughs> I'm lacking the cool factor. My um, significant other um, comes from the military, he's a former Green Beret and former Ranger and very much into code names and call signs and all this stuff. And he's like, you can't give yourself a code name. <laughs> and, and he suggested cashmere. And I'm like, there's no way. <laughs> there's just no way that 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 sums up, you know, I think my personality, I, I think I would keep it simple. You know, we talked about being authentic. Mm-hmm. When I started Cypher Brief, I love the word Cypher because it was something that had to be kind of figured out. Um, it, it showed you right up front that things weren't always what they seemed. And I loved the sort of idea behind the scenes to figure it out. Right. So I think it would be like Cypher one. So I wish our listeners could see my face because my facial expression was like, of course, like that is perfect. That is the perfect. I'm coach. glad you think so. Cause this has been stressing me out. <laughs> oh no, I didn't want to stress you out. I, I just, that's a, that's perfect. Yeah. I think, um, I think everybody should go through the exercise of trying to think about what their own, you know, code name would be. Cause, uh, it's a great, it's a good exercise. I, like I think it. so too. I think so yeah. too. So I want to thank you uh, for many things, but one, you know, making this very easy and comfortable. I am going to be honest. Um, I was really nervous to talk with you because you are the master interviewer. You're the master moderator. I've seen you moderate numerous panels. And I thought, how am I going to live up to you know, Suzanne Kelly, there's no way. Oh so thank God. you for making me feel so comfortable do- having this conversation with you. Thank you for making me feel so confident. That's awesome. I, no one's ever said that to me before. <laughs> it's very kind of you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I mean it. And you know what? Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your time, your stories. And you know what? Thank you for, for what you do at the Cypher Brief. I think it's so important. And we were just thrilled to have you. Well, I have to thank you and your team as well. I think, um, you know, part of what I do um, is motivated by trying to give people more of what I think they need. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. You and your team with Iron Butterfly, I mean, you guys are doing a great job 
um, of, of kind of giving women um, the sort of behind the scenes information about how do they think, right? And how do they work through difficult challenges? And not enough people are doing that. So I appreciate your focus and I'm more than thrilled to be a part of it. So thank you for asking. Well, thank you. That means a lot. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time. I love it. We should just make this a five-hour podcast. I know. I know.